Peace, We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. Joining us today are Raj Burley and Gumahar Kar, Digital Peace Now Global Ambassadors. Raj Burley's passion lies in advocating for social justice and raising awareness about socio-political issues impacting young people. It's this drive that led him to become a board director for UN Youth Australia, one of the largest entirely youth-ran nonprofits in the country that endeavors to educate students across the nation about different issues that impact young people. Gumahar Kar is a writer and social activist originally from India. She is the author of Small Acts of Freedom, a deeply personal family history published by Penguin Random House India in 2018. Her second book, The Young and the Restless, Youth and Politics in India, was published during the Lok Sabha elections in May 2019. In 2017, Carr was listed by Time magazine as a next generation leader, a global listing of 10 young men and women making a difference in the world. Liz Hume is the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Liz is a seasoned expert in international policy and is a foreign assistance expert who has worked for the U.S. government and a number of multilateral organizations internationally carrying out complex conflict prevention and governance programs in conflict-affected and fragile states in Asia, Eastern Europe, and Africa. She joined the Alliance for Peacebuilding in 2015 as Senior Director for Programs and Strategy and was promoted to Vice President in 2018 and Executive Director in 2022. Raj Burley and Gumahar Kar, welcome to the Peace We Build It podcast. We will begin this conversation with Liz Hume, who will address the connections between cyber resilience and how they relate to the peacebuilding field. Welcome back, Liz. Thanks, Tanya. I think what we really want to do here is make the connection between peace and security and cybersecurity. So start with a silver lining. With more citizens and states experiencing cyber attacks, it's increasingly clear to all the seriousness of cyber attacks and the impact they have on peace and stability. And really the silver lining is that there are so many efforts underway, both on the private sector or government and private individuals to really prevent and reduce the threat of attacks. But I think it's really important, you know, to kind of get us there, to think about what we're talking about. You know, you're sitting at your computer and you get a weird message with an attachment. Something doesn't look right. You click on it. In the past few weeks, I mean, we've been talking at AFP of how we have been 
bombarded by phishing to try to get into our computers. Now you click on it and something happens. Your data can get wiped out. Your you know, data can get ransomware. And you, know, you keep taking that up a notch of how it can really impact society. And so I think that's really you know, the key here in terms of that connection. And we've been thinking so much about conventional weapons and conventional war, but really, you know, Ukraine is really showing us the cyber attacks and how important this is. And when does it become that, you know, equivalent to conventional warfare? And so I think that that's really, you know, the connection, I think, between peace and security. And so I really look forward to this conversation today. Thanks, Liz. So Rajan and Gurmahar, uh, Liz gave us some examples of cyber attacks, but she also gave us a silver lining and that governments and people are taking this issue seriously. Uh, Can each of you tell us what is silver resilience and what is already working to reduce and prevent cyber attacks? Looking at actors like governments, the private sectors and individuals. First, can I uh, turn to you, Raj, and then uh, Gurmahar, follow. Thank you, Tanya. Um, and, and Liz, yeah, it is, it is definitely quite scary what, what's happening uh, around the world. Cyber resilience at a fundamental level is the ability of an entity, so like a private business or government department, even an individual level. It's their ability to prepare for, respond to, and recover from a cyber attack, it boils down to one simple thing. The more aware we are of a threat, the more will be done to address that threat. So we are seeing like more discussions and news coverage of the dangers of cyber attacks, which does put a much needed spotlight on the threat of online attacks and the need to establish stronger cybersecurity principles, which goes a long way towards preventing cyber attacks, which is great, which is what we want to be seeing and which is what we need more prevalence of. And when it does come to the topic of cyber warfare, the one thing that we know for certain is that the more the public understands, the more intensely concerned they become. In Digital Peace Now's Cyber Warfare Awareness Report, we actually found that once a population understands the threat of cyber warfare, nine out of 10 respondents agree that our very way of life is at risk if nothing is done to address that threat. Now, the key there, Tanya, being that it's once they're aware, it's once the population understands that threat. So education and awareness, the more people get on that bullhorn and raise awareness, about the things like the dangers of cyber attacks and the need for cyber security, cyber safety, cyber resilience, the higher the chances that meaningful action will be taken. Thanks uh, very much. Uh, Gurmahar, uh, why don't you give us your ideas about illustrating some of these, these challenges that we face in cyber resilience? Thank you so much, Tanya, and thank you so much, Raj. And I think Raj did a very good job of sort of building the foundation to what I really wanted to say. As we've established what cyber resilience, essentially, you know, what it does mean is the measure of like an individual, you know, like Raj said, or uh, a governmental or a private enterprise to manage a cyber attack or a data breach, you know, while being able to sort of continue their 
work, you know, their everyday working effectively. And the thing is, you know, the way that this cyber resilience is achieved is by being super prepared uh, to both respond and recover from these cyber attacks when they happened. And I just want to speak about, you know, what happens in the corporate world and take an example of, of a business enterprise. So you have these business enterprises and they always have disaster recovery plans, which are, you know, which could be surrounded around natural disasters or economic disasters. And now what we want when we talk about cyber resilience is sort of our governments, these private enterprises, our NGOs, our institutions to sort of have a good disaster recovery plans to remain cyber you know, resilient, you know, in the face of an event where there is a cyber attack. You know, the problem here is that you can only have a recovery plan once you've acknowledged the threat. And that lack of, and just building on exactly what Raj said, what, what we need today is a conversation, is a very serious conversation in all these sectors about acknowledging how dangerous these cyber attacks are, figuring out your vulnerabilities and building a disaster plan. Thanks very much. Uh, it's ironic but I will share with everybody here that the past two weeks I was hacked twice and um, I do a lot of work in Eastern Europe. So I'm not surprised that I was hacked, but it happened twice and it's really unpleasant. And I lost, you know, a lot of work performance out of it. So it's happened to me personally. And speaking of which, uh, Gurmahar, we've been hearing a lot about Russia using cyberspace as a front in the war in Ukraine, even before the military invasion. And I might add, indeed, cyber hybrid warfare is integrated into the Russian military doctrine. They have used it effectively in the past, as long ago as 2007 against the Estonian government and in 2014 against the Ukrainian government when it was involved in presidential elections. They hacked and they even leveraged their power against the Democratic National Committee and other state voting registers during the 2016 U.S. elections here in the United States. So how is the international community and even Ukrainians responding to this in real time? What are we learning right now in the Ukrainian war with Russia? Today, something that's happened and sort of linking to, to my response to the previous question, something what's happened now is that we are going back and looking at 2015 when the Russian attackers sort of hacked and paralyzed the Ukrainian power grid uh, by using the tro Trojan virus. You know, it resulted in about three lakh households losing power in the middle of a winter. In fact, there's this book that Andy Gerber, uh, Greenberg, where, where he's speaking to one of, one of the victims of the attack and how difficult it was to lose your um, internal heating. You know, Ukraine is a cold country. There's ice outside. So when the power is gone and you don't have backups, it's as cold inside as it is outside. You know, it can cause civilian deaths. And then followed by, you know, followed by 2016, where the attack was no longer just on the power grid, but it was also then um, elevated to the Ukraine's banking and governmental system. So there is this sort of acknowledgement and acceptance of the fact that Russia has been using these abilities um, to attack other countries. And, you know, it is because of all these years of, and, and surprisingly, you know, and which is what's very interesting to me, uh, especially when I think about how Ukrainians and international community is responding to it. 
what's happened is because there have been so many years of cyber attacks by Russia and Ukraine that over the years, Ukraine has become digitally competent and more resilient in the process because they've experienced it and they've uh, made a disaster strategy. And there's this very interesting thing that Leonard Mashmer, he's a cybersecurity researcher in Zurich, and he says this, that then, you know, in cyber wars, there really are no cyber weapons. You know, a cyber weapon depends on the vulnerability of the target. So if the target, you know, a cyber weapon is as uh, effective as the target is vulnerable. So if, if the target overcomes these vulnerabilities, has a disaster management plan, uh, the weapon, you know, is no longer effective. Uh, and what's very interesting and the way we've seen the response that the world is sort of becoming more prepared to deal with, with these cyber attacks and sort of blunting this weapon. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think you're seeing the more people get attacked and more entities get attacked that we realize that we have to develop a, a good measure of security in order to withstand future attacks. So where else are cyber attacks impacting conflict? We do know that China is engaged in cyber attacks as well. In 2021, FireEye said they suspected Chinese hackers used a zero-day attack against Pulse Connect secure devices, a VPN device, in order to spy on dozens of governments, defense industry, and financial targets throughout the United States and Europe. So it seems that there's, you know, two really aggressive governments using this as part of their engagement with the rest of the world and examples of Russia and China. Is there anybody else? And are you aware of anything currently that's happening? And I'd ask you, Raj, initially. Uh, yeah, I think the important thing to, to know, I mean, we can take examples from, from around the world. Um, Tanya, as you've just mentioned, one clear-cut example, but another is the ongoing Israel and Iran cyber conflict. Um, so suspected Israel-backed cyber attacks against an Iranian petrol distribution system. And on the flip side of that coin, we've got suspected Iranian-linked hacker groups leaking private information of an LGBTQ plus dating website. The nature of, of the conflict is, is quite tumultuous and a lot of the time it's the most vulnerable and uh, the most marginalized in the communities that are impacted. It's innocent civilians. I think we need to be quite cognizant of the fact and the reality that this is not localized to a particular region of the world. It's not localized to a particular demographic. It's not especially not limited to times of war. Also, during times of peace, this is not something that, yeah, we're now in a conflict, it's now open to cyber attacks. No, this transcends that, that barrier. And we see cyber attacks and acts of cyber warfare across history, even particularly looking back through, as, as Germaha mentioned, through WannaCry or Stuxnet um, and not Petya. So a major reason why we should care about curbing state-sponsored cyber attacks is that these online attacks, their sole purpose, their aim, is to destabilize countries and disrupt the daily lives of citizens, innocent citizens, even when there is no armed conflict taking place. So I think that is a, a really crucial thing to, to bear in mind. And until our world leaders establish and implement cyber rules of the road, basically like an international agreement on how we behave online, governments around the world 
uh, will we'll continue to launch attacks like these, further escalating tensions and interfering with our shared digital world. So you think there should be an international convention addressing these issues? 100%. I think it is necessity for the safety of our future as we integrate technology into our lives more and more. I think the need for a globally recognized and accepted set of rules is essential. Yes, I've seen some mentions about this. This is something that I think the UN is going to be challenged with. Gwimhar, do you have any other thoughts about cyber attacks impacting conflict um, elsewhere or any thoughts about this convention? I've, I've heard it mentioned and um, it's being pursued. It would be pursued through the UN system on international law, obviously. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, today we know that all eyes are on the Ukraine-Russian conflict. But it's so important to understand that there are other conflicts which obviously range in intensity uh, happening worldwide. And, you know, cyber attacks are involved in those conflicts. Um, For example, there has been a cyber conflict between China and India. And even though, you know, China and India are not in a formal war like, like Ukraine and Russia, they continue to launch cyber attacks against one another because of geopolitical issues. In 2020, there were geopolitical issues around the territory of Doklam, followed by the territorial dispute. There was this New York Times report by Jeffrey Gettleman that basically uncovered, you know, a Chinese attack on the Mumbai power grid, very similar to the Trojan attack by Russia on Ukraine's power grid. Um, and even early this month, you know, hackers probably linked to Chinese governments, have been targeting North India's power supply. Then there have been multiple uh, recorded cyber attacks between these two countries. And in, in China and India just happen to be, you know, one of the many cases where two countries are utilizing cyber attacks during ongoing geopolitical tensions. And when you really think about it, that there are these two superpowers in the East, both rising democracies, both nuclear, nuclear um, state going at war, with each other and there are no conventions in place. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, this could really escalate, you know, geopolitical tensions into, you know, perhaps a conventional or even nuclear war. This is, you're absolutely right. There's no rules governing the regulation and a common set of principles that would yield to creating, you know, safety and potential peace. So it is, uh, I think, remarkable of war by other means. It's hybrid warfare. Uh, Tanya, if, if I may yes, please, jump in, please. please. Um, just something that um, I think is, is really good for our listener base, or your listener base, I should say, to, to think about. Rules like this are being developed. I mean, particularly within the, the United Nations, we have the, um, the GGE, the Governmental Group of Experts, and the OEWG, which is the open-ended working group, all trying to come together around what we think these principles could be. And something that Digital Peace now um, worked on and, and campaigned for was, was the Paris call for peace and security in cyberspace. I highly recommend that the listeners just throw that into Google. There are nine principles um, that stem from protecting individuals and infrastructure, protecting the internet, all the way through to defending the electoral processes of of different governments. And this has been supported not just 
by individual governments, but by businesses and the, the private sector and civil society. So the key message around developing these principles is that it has to be uh, from a multi-stakeholder perspective. We can't isolate any one particular group, sector, or market. It has to come from a point of coalescence. But the principles do exist. And generally speaking, I think globally, we can come together and or come around uh, particular principles that are going to be quite valuable for the future of securing cyberspace. And the Paris Call is a, a good example of nine such principles that I think we can all agree on. That's really excellent information. And that's important, very important, as, as you both have illustrated. So this world of cybersecurity is certainly complex, and it can be difficult for those who are not in the tech sector to really understand, let alone work on cyber resilience. What can we all do to make both peace building and the cyber sector more integrated and accessible to each other? And what are uh, some of those practical steps? What are your thoughts, Gwemahar? Just building on exactly what Raj said, we do need to lean into multi-stakeholders mm. and we need to encourage create inclusivity in digital peace building efforts. Um, it's not an isolated battle. It's not something that only private sectors face, or it's not something that the governments face exclusively, or it's not something that the civilians face exclusively. Cyber wars impact every single group of people very much in the same way. And you know, governmental bodies need to bring trusted and reliable cybersecurity organizations and individuals to the table. And, you know, they need to let them be a part of this digital peace building process. Both cybersecurity experts, digital diplomacy experts, sort of really need to utilize each other's know-how to make real change in cyberspace. So we should be encouraging information exchange and cross-industry collaboration. Do you have anything to add to that, Raj? Yeah, I, um, I think it comes down to education, digital literacy, cyber comprehension, Yes, cybersecurity can be a complex and, and nuanced topic, but that's why we need to tackle that aspect of it you know, quite head on. And the way to do that is uh, both the cybersecurity world and the peace building community need to come together and produce digestible, easy to understand and accessible material about cybersecurity and cyber warfare and its implications for society more broadly. Material like this will help the peace building community fully comprehend the challenges that exist, both on a technical level, but also on an industry level, and figure out the best way to address these challenges uh, with peace building in mind. I think when you leave it or operate within silos, you create more cracks in that system. And without having a, again, <laughs> my word for the, the podcast is the coalescence, unless we have a, a unified understanding of where the gaps are and where the challenges are and how we can bridge them collectively, we are still open to attack. Very good. So Raj, uh, this is specifically for you. You have extensive experience working for the inclusion of youth in policies and programs. For example, you formerly served on the board of directors for the UN Youth Australia, one of the largest youth-run nonprofits in the country. What is being done to integrate the cyber resilience agenda in the education sector and with youth? in Australia and maybe beyond, and what more needs to be done? Digital literacy is a core component of online and personal safety. And there's a clear benefit for those who 
who do have a fundamental understanding of the digital world when it comes to being cyber resilient and cyber secure. Schools, both in developed and developing nations and particularly well-resourced regions of the world, are working towards digital integration, cybersecurity and cyber safety skills, but they're still being adopted um, at, a, at a rather slower rate than technology is evolving and being integrated into our day-to-day lives. There are ample education programs around the world that exist to work on this issue and not only teach digital skills, but also digital safety and resilience. They just they have to go hand in hand. I think we hear a lot about school saying, yeah, look, we're, we're integrating technology into the classroom. But if you just have a PDF of a textbook, that's not really where the world is heading. We're talking about a fundamental digital transformation in the way that we engage with the cyber world. I like to think of all of us now basically like cyborgs. My phone is no more than a meter away from my hand and it's basically like a computer that's attached to me. So we need this paradigmatic shift in the way that we understand the digital world and its implications for us. Right now, our generation and the generations before us were kind of adopted into, into the cyberverse and the future generations, the, the young people in our world are happily and freely moving between these worlds and they don't see that distinction. They're digital natives where there is, there is literally no distinction between these two worlds and, and safety will be all encompassing. When we say personal safety, it includes both being safe online and in the real world. And actions in the real world are going to have a, an impact in the online world and vice versa. As far as what more needs to be done, Tanya, accessibility of education is such a crucial element. And this is something that we can all agree on, whether you're in the technical space and you're working for a technical organization or you're in the peace building sector, it's accessibility of education. We need everyone to be safe online, no matter where in the world they are and no matter what their socioeconomic status is. Raising awareness about cyber warfare, cyber safety and cyber resilience issues, not just for the young people that will be impacted by them, but also for the people entrusted with teaching them about this world and also for the people entrusted with governing this world, legislating this world. It's crucial that we give them a platform to stand on that is founded upon principles of peace and security. That's very comprehensive and it gives one a great deal of food for thought. I just think about, you know, I work at two universities and I'm thinking about safety and I never hear about that. That's very interesting. So I would like to turn to you, uh, Gurmahar. Uh, What does success look like in this sector from your point of view? And what is your best advice for peace builders globally to help build cyber resilience? I think I would want to divide what success looks like in sort of like the next five years and, and what the long-term goal is. And I think we've spoken about the long-term goal um, quite extensively when we talk about the Geneva Convention or these international conventions um, mm-hmm. around cyber warfare. But I think what's very important in the immediate future you know, it's for peace builders globally to come together and help build cyber resilience. And they can do this by reaching out to policymakers to demand they put an end to state-sponsored cyber attacks. And if they haven't already done that, you know, tell them to endorse international agreements that protest, you know, that protect the internet, uh, like the Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace. And if they've signed an agreement, you know, urge them to implement the cyber norms they've agreed to 
and follow through with their cybersecurity commitments. So, you know, it is through this advocacy, through younger peace builders um, globally coming together, we can achieve our long-term goal of uh, Geneva Convention or of these frameworks around cyberspace. Thank you very much. And Raj, uh, what are your thoughts on what does success look like in this sector? I feel like it's an ever-evolving question. We have to be keeping up to date with the, the technology, making sure that we're aware of the evolutions in how technology is being used and utilized, not just in times of war, but especially during times of peace. So for peace builders, it's about staying informed, raising awareness, understanding what's happening in cyberspace and spreading the word by telling your family and friends about why we should all care about digital peace. You, you don't have to have a, a mega platform. You, you don't have to be in a position of extreme power. There are things that you and I, all of your listeners can do. Um, and it could start with uh, as simple as a conversation with, with friends and family. Moreover, I think taking that one step further to self-educate. So understanding how your actions online impact the, the safety of you and your family. So Tanya, I, I think we can both appreciate. I too have, have also been hacked and it's, it's not something that you sort of expect. It just happens. So uh, recognizing that it can reach you. This isn't something that's relegated to a particular part of the world or a particular type of person. It's anybody. Anybody can be impacted by this. So practicing cyber hygiene, teaching others the best way to protect themselves, updating systems, passwords, all of these really tangible steps are valuable. And through that process, you learn about the digital world that I guess we all call home. Obviously, just finally, I guess, letting proper authorities know if you believe that you have been a victim of a cyber attack and making sure that we are working towards, I guess, curbing that threat through the official channels. And finally, it's recognizing that there is no peace without digital peace. Thank you very much. It's a very interesting conversation. We wish you both the best in your work with Digital Peace Now. And thanks to Raj Burley and Gumahar Kar for their participation in this conversation about cyber resilience and peace building. And thanks for tuning in to the Peace We Build It podcast. And thanks to our guests, Raj Burley and Gumahar Kar. Digital Peace Now Global Ambassadors. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peace Building based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peace Building, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.